Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. This episode continues my ongoing series on peace building. I have learned that many who are active in peace efforts make the distinction of in three terms. Peacekeeping is used to describe military intervention and efforts at keeping violence in check. Peacemaking is often applied to national, international, and large group efforts of diplomacy. But peace building, however, includes those efforts on any level, especially on a personal level, of developing the habits and relationships that prevent violence. I first learned of these distinctions from Rabbi Amy Eilberg's wonderful book, From Enemy to Friend, Jewish Wisdom in the Pursuit of Peace, but have since seen their use in others. This series was inspired by my discovery of Drs. Ephraim Omar and Michael Dufay's important book, Peacemaking and the Challenge of Violence in World Religions. In that work, they provide a resource for learning about the understanding of peace and peace-building resources from practitioners of seven of the world religions. This series is modeling after that book by having conversations about peace and peace-building with peace activists from different faiths and humanistic perspectives. Today, I am having a conversation with Judaism. This is an especially important and meaningful day to be doing so because it is Holocaust Remembrance Day. If there ever was an experience that should propel our interfaith and interhuman efforts of peace-building, it is the memory of that experience. My guest today is Rabbi Nancy Fuchs Kreimer. Rabbi Kreimer has done so many creative and innovative initiatives and has been so extensively involved in peace-building efforts that I could spend the whole episode delightfully reading her resume. But what I will say is that Rabbi Kreimer is a part of the Reconstructionist Judaism. She did her rabbinical study at Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and is now Associate Professor Emeritus at the Rabbinical College. She earned her PhD at Temple University in Religious Studies and has been active in interfaith activities for nearly four decades. You can learn more about Rabbi Kreimer at reconstructingjudaism.org or by Googling her. I will also have links on my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net. I'm going to be drawing my questions and discussion for Rabbi Kreimer from three resources from her contribution to the book, Strangers, Neighbors, Friends, Muslims, Christians, Jewish Reflections on Compassion and Peace, which Rabbi Kramer co-authored with Kelly James Clark and Aziz Abu Sarah. Her book, Parenting as a Spiritual Journey, and the Reconstruction Judaism website. So Rabbi Kramer, thank you for being with me today. I am delighted and very honored. Why don't we begin by letting you talk about your own spiritual journey? especially as that led you into becoming a rabbi, and also as that led you into being an activist in peace building. So thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today, um, especially on Yom HaShoah, the day of Holocaust remembrance. Um, thank you for mentioning that. Um, strangely enough, my um, journey 
into the rabbinate involves the Holocaust, um, not personally. I didn't grow up with them knowing family members that um, had died. I grew up in the 1950s. Um, but in um, as I was getting ready to graduate from college in 1974, I happened to attend a conference called Auschwitz Beginning of a New Era, question mark. And it was held in New York City at um, an Episcopal cathedral. And the purpose of that conference was to initiate a conversation that really hadn't been happening so much yet among Christians about um, the legacy of the Holocaust and about the Christian role in um, creating the seeds that made it possible for there to be a Holocaust in Germany and Europe in the 30s and 40s. And um, I was very moved by that conference. I was sort of wondering what I was going to do with my life. I knew it was going to have something to do with religion. That was very clear to me. But um, when I went to that conference, I was so impressed by Christian scholars um, who were devoting their lives really to reconstructing, as we would call it in our movement, their own heritage, their own theology, their liturgy, their textbooks, their um, their passion plays. They were really trying to rethink everything from the ground up to try to understand, um, could Christianity really not be a source of hate, but a source of, 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 of healing as it was meant to be in their view. And I got so excited about this whole enterprise. I thought, I want to be an ally in that work. And so I actually ended up um, going to rabbinical school in Philadelphia. And at the same time, um, going to a doctoral program at Temple University, where I studied with some of the leading people in that field of Jewish-Christian relations at the time. Uh, Paul Van Buren, Franklin Littell, Father Gerard Sloyan, um, Leonard Swidler. These were the luminaries in that work. And I had the honor of spending um, my early years, and this was like 77 to 90, well, not 90, but 77 to 82, studying with them. Even at the same time, I was pursuing my rabbinical studies at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. But I always had my idea that I wanted to be um, an interfaith educator. Um, how that happened and how I ended up, that, that work ended up morphing considerably for me over the years, but that's a longer story. Right now, you just wanted to know how I got into it. So that's what I'm telling you. Well, and from, from your own heritage, uh, what have been the primary resources that you've drawn from uh, to do your Well, work? it depends again what you mean by my work. When my work was really working with Christians as seeing them being allies to Jews and working with them to try to rethink Christianity, um, the main um, thing that I brought to the table was my willingness as a Jew to be part of that enterprise. And the Jewish tradition was basically saying, hey, guys, this is your tradition. You got to fix it. But we're really, really eager to see how you do that. Um, and that was, I, it wasn't really calling on me to, um, to, to, to do, I was, it was a different kind of work. I was kind of like assisting them in their prophetic witness to their own communities. Um, around anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. And to the extent that they wanted to show their communities that anti-Judaism was misguided, anti-Semitism was misguided, I could provide um, you know, information. I could certainly be the Jew that would talk to them about what Judaism really is all about. Uh, but it, in the end of the day, it wasn't actually all that um, spiritually nourishing for me. It felt more like um, 
that it was really their work. And um, I will then continue my spiritual journey story by telling you that um, later, um, actually on a very specific day, which all of you remember very well, it was a beautiful Tuesday morning in Philadelphia. I don't know what it looked like in um, Asheville, North Carolina, but it was sunny and gorgeous. It was um, Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. And I was sitting in my office at the Jewish Family and Children's Service um, when the planes hit the Twin Towers. And I, I remember um, it was I remember thinking at that time, I had a lot of thoughts about, you know, the world's going to change, the world's going to change. But what I didn't know until maybe a week later was how it was going to restart my career, my um, calling as an interfaith educator, because it was pretty clear to me very soon after that. And I, I maybe it was two weeks later um, that um, it became clear to me that something was afoot in this country. And it had to do with um, a, a rise in Islamophobia. Uh, it, in the beginning, it was more like just curiosity, like who are these Muslims and where were they all this time? And, and, and what are we supposed to be thinking about them? And for Jews and my community, it became a really important journey, which for me lasted right until today, actually, which has been 19 years now, um, of thinking about how, and here's where the resources come in, how my religion, how my faith has to deal with a, another group who are actually in our American context, the ones who were who were um, being targeted in some ways, and, and, and the hate was being to, uh, the, the lesson that I took from this Holocaust work and all of that Jewish Christian work that I had done for a decade before that was about the model of my Christian mentors. And what I saw coming out of after September 11th was that the way I was going to live out their legacy and model was to become for my community around Islam and Muslims, what they had been trying to do around Christians and Christianity. So that was basically, in a nutshell, my story. Um, I had an amazing, amazing, um, steep learning curve <laughs> where I had to kind of quickly figure out what the heck Islam was because I had no idea. I had actually taken a graduate course in Islam where I had written down dutifully everything that the professor said. It was one of the leading scholars of Islam in the country of Temple University. I passed the exams. Well, when I went back to my notes back in when the 2001 happened and my notes at that point were, were, were old, they were still on paper in those days before we had computers. Um, the, and I had taken them, they were in a file and I pulled out the file and I read everything and I went like, I still have no idea what this religion is all about. I have no clue. I have the five pillars and I have the history and the different you know, groups and the legal, legal, I didn't know what I was talking about. So I realized that what I actually had to do was learn something about Muslims. That's what I had to do. And of course, um, I knew all this back in my head because I had watched Christians go through this process of taking Judaism as this abstract entity and then actually finding out who Jews were and then realizing that if they knew one Jew, they knew one Jew, and they had to know many Jews in order to understand the variety. Well, I went through that same process as I tried to figure out who Muslims were. Funny enough, I live um, in a place um, in Philadelphia. It's an interracial city, and I live in an interracial community there, but um, we are 
still siloed in our social worlds very much. And I didn't know actually, strangely enough, in September 2001, that I lived a mile from one of the great historical communities of African-American Islam. Who knew? I didn't. I was driving through the streets. I would in my car, I would go from my house to um, my office, which was just over the city line in the suburbs at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. And I did not know, I actually did not know that I would drive right through this amazing, to this day, both historic and contemporary, beautiful community of African-Americans that had been part of originally the Nation of Islam. Most of them had converted um, into um, Sunni Islam and mainstream Sunni Islam. There was a magnificent mosque there. Um, when I say magnificent, I don't mean physically magnificent. I mean spiritually magnificent. Great leaders, great history to be told. Brother Richard Hassan had been a roommate of Malcolm X when Malcolm X lived in Philadelphia. So I started to get to know these people. I started to go, I start thinking of it as my, my mosque, <laughs> my neighborhood mosque. And I um, started to bring my students there and I rethought what it meant to teach rabbinical students because I was teaching at the rabbinical college and I had been teaching them the same boring courses that I had taken at graduate school about Islam. I had been hiring in Muslim scholars and they had been dutifully writing down the notes, same way I had. And I realized, oh boy, I was doing it all wrong. I had to teach them about American Muslims today. Who are they? What are their problems? What are their hopes? What are their dreams? How do we connect with them? How do we collaborate with them? And so that's what my work has been. And that's what I call peace building. Okay. Well, so how do you, how do you understand, I mean, like in your mind, what is peace? And, you know, what is justice? Well, yeah, I'll start with those. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. Those are questions that don't, um, don't grab me. And they, 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 they feel a little essentialized and abstract. I like to think particulars rather than generals. So I don't do much with words like peace and justice, but I do a lot with, if you tell me a story and I can tell you, this is what's broken here. This is what needs fixing. This is how we might be able to fix it. So I would just pivot your question to say that for me, um, I wasn't, I never conceptualized what I was doing with the Jewish community to be about peace or even necessarily about justice. But what I did conceptualize was that um, as I went out and spoke to synagogues, and I must have spoken to scores, I mean, scores of synagogues in the last um, 20 years um, about Islam and about Muslims, what I understood it to be was an actually about educating ourselves to know our neighbor, to know what our neighbor needs, to know what our neighbor's pain is, to be an ally to our neighbor, to sit with our neighbor and collaborate with them um, to build a better world. That's what I understood my work to be. And if that's peace, then it's peace. If it's justice, it's justice. But for me, it's all about um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, love your neighbor as yourself, et cetera. Uh, that, is, that is the essence of it, the, um, the honoring, um, the stranger. I mean, I guess that Kelly James Clark, the Christian person who put that book together, um, called it Strangers, Neighbors, Friends, because that, I think it was a great title. In fact, he, when he asked me to be part of the book, that was really why I uh, agreed, because I liked the title so much. 
Yes, we start as strangers. And what does our tradition tell us about strangers? Our tradition tells us, this is in Judaism and in Christianity, that if you invite your stranger inside and feed them, they may turn out to be an angel unawares. That's in the New Testament, but it's based on a story in the Hebrew Bible um, in Genesis 18, where Abraham um, brings in the strangers and finds out later that they're actually not strangers, but angels. And um, New Testament picks up that, that image. So for me, it's about turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into friends, and then building a better world. That's what it's all about. Um, pretty simplistic, um, maybe not peace, but it's what, it's what I do. Well, and so give us a specific example of one of your favorite uh, memories of that uh, as you as you began that process of getting to know Muslims. And well, I'll just give you an example. I mean, there are so many hundreds of them I couldn't even begin, but I'll, I'll just give you an example that I heard about yesterday. Um, I ran a program for campus chaplains, and I invited them to come together to... Um, go on retreats together and to talk about their spiritual practices and to share them. It was part of a Henry Luce Foundation grant that I had for three years. So um, yesterday I heard from one of my um, chaplains who had been part of this program, um, a, a, a Muslim who it serves at Temple University. Now he came to the retreat with the rabbi, a Hillel rabbi, who was um, at the same university. I invited these two gentlemen to be part of the retreat because I knew that they served the same very large urban university temple, the one I had graduated from with my doctorate actually. And I knew for a fact that in the four years that this rabbi had been serving there, the two of them had never met. That was possible. That was a possible thing. A Muslim student association, a Hillel, opposite sides of the campus, two very busy professionals. The Muslim guy wasn't even full-time or even part-time. He was actually doing this more as a volunteer. He was a professor at the university. And then they asked him, could you advise the Muslim Student Association? He was like, sure. So, you know, there was a lot of reasons why they had never met, but um, still, I mean, that's not exactly peace <laughs> yet. Um, it's not even knowing each other, it's strangers. And there was a lot of reasons why there were tensions between the Muslim Student Association and the Hillel that had to do with, as you can imagine, Israel-Palestine politics and other things. So that was all there. And um, there was animosity even, I would say, not friendship. Um, anyway, these two gentlemen came to my retreat together in the summer. They got to know each other. They became friends. They did not become fast friends. They didn't start hanging out together. But when um, the um, on Friday afternoons, when it was time for Muslim prayer, they had to scrounge around for a place to pray. And they used different buildings because they didn't have their own, um, you know, center the way the Hillel did. Um, so this individual, the Muslim person told me that um, when they can't find a place to pray, they pray at the Hillel. And the Hillel opened its doors, and that's where the Muslim Student Association brings their folks on Friday afternoons. The room is open, and they go in there and they pray. And so, you know, sharing a prayer space, simple, right? Um, there's some justice involved in that because um, the Hillels are usually well more resourced at this point in time than Muslim Student Associations. But more importantly, it's about... Um, it's about peace, really, I guess. And if you want to use that big fancy word, <laughs> the thousand dollar word. Um, but I would say it's about neighborliness. I would say it's about finding out who your strangers are and turning them into neighbors. So 
you like how do you initiate that uh, to begin with? I mean, you know, you just go up and say hi, and then after that, what do you well, do? Well, that's what I did in this retreat. I mean, first of all, I had $100,000 from a foundation to pay people to come to a retreat. So that was not something that everybody can do. So that's not exactly a, a recipe. But um, what I did at the retreats is definitely something that can happen on a much smaller scale. It could happen anywhere you are, which is that in my retreats, I try to get away from theological dialogue. I try to get away from the idea of the sage on the stage, of people pontificating about what their theologies are. Um, I got away from all the combustible issues that might divide us, like let's have a debate about whether Israel should be here or there in one state, two state, three states. Uh, you know, no, that wasn't what this retreat was about. Uh, I tried to get away from all the things that usually make interfaith dialogue um, a head thing and turn it more into a heart thing. And I went to this notion that um, I think, David, you're very interested in because I went and was preparing for this interview. I listened to another interview that you had on your on the line, and it had to do with a guy who was talking about um, spiritual practices for resilience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mark yeah, Mullinex, yeah, yeah. who's at yeah, Mars Exactly. So um, that's what we did. What I find really powerful is to take people and say, sit down. Tell us how you, how your tradition helps you find the interruptions in your life or the disciplines or whatever you want to call it, um, the practices that you do that help you show up as the person you want to be, that help you show up as your better self. And when we do that, when we talk about those things, when we show each other those, when we share them, when we actually do them together at these retreats, the interesting thing about the retreat was that we would sit and a Buddhist would tell us about meditation. And then we would meditate with her for an hour. Or if there was a Muslim telling us about prayer, stationary standing prayer, um, statutory prayer, the prayer that you do five times a day, which is actually Salat, which is different from the prayer from the heart that you do when you're in a place of, oh my God, you know, a certain kind of invitation to prayer that comes from inside. But the statutory prayer of Islam, the five times a day prayer with the kneeling and the particular words that are said from Quran, um, when a woman or a man who is a leader in Islam would teach at our retreat, they would often choose to teach us that practice. And they would tell us about that practice and how that practice becomes a scaffolding for their day and what it means to get down on your knees five times a day or multiple times a day because you get down on your knees more than once each time. And we would then get a chance to do that with them. We would get down and we would do it and we would see what it felt like to have your shoulder against shoulder and do that prayer together. And um, it was really, really powerful powerful to realize in your body what it meant to be um, part of that practice. And this is not about syncretism. It's not about making one great big soup of um, interfaith um, new age mush that everybody can then do everything together and call it something other than whatever. It's not really anything. It's just a mix of things. It's not about that. It's about each thing in its particularity having its own distinctive and um, real value and um, 
I, I let me just pause now to say that in all the people that I have worked with to do this work, it has been hardest for the Christian Protestants to understand this. Everybody else gets it almost immediately. They go, okay, I got my practice. I'm going to go, here we go. We're going to do this chanting. We're going to do this meditation. We're going to do this um, standing prayer. We're going to do this, this, that, the other thing. The Jews come in with theirs. Um, Catholics have all kinds of things that they have where there's contemplative prayers and different things that they do, um, that stations of the cross, whatever. And when I've done this work, when I've interviewed Protestants, they're like, I don't know, like, I'll tell you about my ideas and, you know, this and that. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't want you to tell me ideas. I want you to tell me what you do every single day. And it's been very interesting. And then the other piece that's hard for Christians, although it doesn't seem to be hard for everybody else, the Hindus, oh, by the way, Hindus love this. They do their chanting and they talk about that. But it's been really hard for Protestants, I've discovered in my experience, is that they then have this desire to sort of say, well, really, we're all doing the same thing. Like, let's just put it all together in one big thing and call it whatever. And and, and there's something imperialist about that. I'd be really honest with you. Um, in my experience, Christianity's universalism has a tinge of... Um, it's not, it's universalist sounds so great, but it's actually a universalism that wants to sort of scoop everything up. And then what they don't realize is that for minority people, that's exactly what we don't want. We don't want to be scooped up into some universal thing. We don't want to become, um, we won't want everybody to say, oh, so we're really all doing the same thing. So we should really all just do the same thing together. And then we would all love each other and it would be peaceful and it would be great. And coming from the minority traditions, the Hindus, the, the me, uh, uh, the, the Muslims, uh, many of us, we have Sikhs involved, we have other people. We, we just kind of say, no, 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 no. We just want to keep doing our thing, our way. We want you to do your thing, own it, love it, be with it, but don't try to make it, don't try to make us you, don't try to make you us. Keep it, this is what we actually are looking for. So that's, that's, one of the learnings that's come out for me about that work. I'd be curious, David, if you have a sense of that yourself. Uh, I would say that um, from, because, you know, my heritage is, is conservative, uh -huh. uh, Southern Baptist heritage. Um, and, and so much of conservative Protestant spirituality, because uh, you and I are about the same age. I graduated in 1973, so I'm uh, think that puts us in this, close to the same right ballpark uh, and um, that spirituality within that heritage uh, the conservative Methodist Presbyterian Baptist heritage was revivalism uh, evangelism uh, Billy Graham was the epitome of what it meant to, to be a Christian um, and so consequently that meant we didn't have uh, the depth of, of spiritual disciplines that the Catholics did. Uh, you know, we didn't have uh, our spiritual discipline included um, uh, a quiet time in which you prayed and read your Bible a little bit, maybe once a day, preferably twice, but not often. Um, and then going out and sharing the gospel. Uh, and so when you get to uh, uh, talking uh, as you have in those those retreats, I can see why the Protestant, you know, particularly if they came from conservative uh, 
uh, tradition within Protestantism, they'd be lost. <laughs> uh, that would be that would be alien language for them, and they and because especially they don't have many spiritual practices outside of that evangelism. Um, then they they don't know how to relate and respond. But how about like liberal and progressive Christians? They also would say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, my tradition leads me to want to go to demonstrate against injustice or my, my you know, they, they had practices like going serving in a soup kitchen or doing the things to make the world better. And believe me, I honor those tremendously. I'm not looking down on those at all. But they when they try to think about practices that sort of helped shore up their own inner lives um, that they would be required to do at home, um, the progressive Christians also didn't have I would agree with that. I think their 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 spirituality was the action of doing right. just which is great. You know, and I and personally that's been a lot of my spirituality as well. And part of why I got interested in all this kind of way of thinking about things was because like as a liberal Jew in an assimilated environment, I had become a lot like progressive Christians in that way, liberal Christians in that my own life as a religious person was very much in the head, was very much, you know, motivated by these high lofty ideas, which then reflected in my life work, which was to go out and do things. But there was a missing piece, which was like how, um, how you cultivate the qualities that you need to do those things in a spiritual way. And that missing piece I eventually found in my practice of Musar, which was a Jewish, traditional Jewish spiritual practice that had developed actually in Europe in the 19th century, but um, it based on older texts and traditions. And I found that when I started doing that regularly, it was transformative because it actually grounded me in my tradition, but it also made me very curious about, I wonder what other people are doing in there. Well, Explain that for us. Well, it's a peculiarly Jewish project. <laughs> Musar, um, it, it, you know, every, but every tradition has stuff that plays deeply into who what they are and who they are. The Jewish traditions, um, the one I developed, I developed, I didn't develop it. The one I began to practice, um, Musar, is a practice of daily um, character reflection. Um, daily reflection on one's personal character traits. Um, Amy Eilberg talks a little bit about it at the end of her book when she talks about six traits that might be um, needed or valuable to a peace builder. And um, but Musar is bigger than that. It talks about patience. It talks about equanimity. It talks about courage. It talks about many different traits. But the way in which you cultivate these traits, wait for this, this is very Jewish, is that you read texts about them and then, wait for this, this is also very Jewish, you talk about that reading and that studying with others. So it is both communal, it is both textual, and it is, um, but it is very much about the inner life. It's not about studying uh, a legal text to figure out, you know, what can I carry on Shabbat and whether I can go outside or inside on Shabbat and how far can I walk away from my home without an object in my hand or any of that stuff. I'm giving those examples because I'm studying 
um, Daf Yomi right now, which is a daily text study of the Talmud. And we happen to be in Shabbat where that's what we're studying. And I'm like, oh, I see why they developed Musar. So Musar was actually developed uh, by an Orthodox rabbi as a response to a tradition that had gotten too whapped up in some of the to-dos and not enough in his mind into, you know, what is it going on inside for people and how are they um, showing up ethically. So not ethically in the sense of big bioethical dilemmas, but in the sense of becoming a mensch, becoming a good person. So um, that's what Musar is. And the way I practiced Musar was to be part of a VOD, a committee, a community of people who would meet weekly to study these texts. And then I had a chavruta, a partner. This is all part of this system, which I met with on another time during the week. And we would talk about our lives and what things were coming up for us in our children, our parents, our partners, our colleagues. We would talk about that in terms of the text that we were studying. Now, the linchpin of all this is that the texts we're studying come from you know, 16th and 17th century. They're old Jewish texts, funny enough, written by mystics, but they are texts which then became the linchpin of this practice of thinking about very concrete things about what we do in our lives today. And I'm closely related to that in your in your uh, parenting as a spiritual journey book, you also talk uh, relating to the mensch, uh, uh, Eidelkite? Eidelkite. Yeah, well, that's just a Yiddish word that means nobility of spirit. I just happen to like that word. It's not used very often anymore, but you don't often see people have it anymore. But um, in the old Yiddish language, when I wrote that book, by the way, I had never heard of Musar and I didn't know very much Yiddish, but I did know, I don't know that much now, but I did know that word Edelkite. And Edelkite, as I understood it from listening to my grandparents using it or whatever, it's a language that has had a revival of recent times. Um, but at the time, you know, it was basically one of the things that was crushed and blighted by the Holocaust was Yiddish culture and Yiddish language. It is now having a revival. You see klezmer musicians, you see people studying Yiddish, you see some effort. It's no longer a spoken language except in Orthodox yeshivas, but it is being revived as a beautiful, beautiful core of a culture and tradition that was destroyed, all but destroyed in the Holocaust, which is what we're talking about because today is Holocaust Memorial Day. Anyway, Edelkite was a word that from what I could tell meant a kind of person who had a sweetness, a nobility of spirit, a gentleness, um, a kind of person that you just is a little bit above the fray. And I uh, just like that word a lot. So I mean, well, is that something that you cultivate through Musar? You try, you try. Then... Musar breaks Edelkite down into midot, into qualities. Um, Edelkite is like a big vision. Like you see this person, you go, ah, you know, that, such a person. I would want my daughter to be like that. Fortunately for me, I ended up with two daughters who were like that. So I was uh, very lucky. But um, what Musar does is say, that's all very nice and good. This, this great vision, you know, be, but, but I want to break it down into specific building blocks. And so when you do the work, you talk about specific traits. Uh, there is a book that you use in Musar um, that actually comes from the 19th century by a guy who actually... <laughs> 
all but stole a whole lot of it from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, believe it or not. This is one of those weird stories of back and forth culture. Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography talks about how he set upon him to become a better person. He broke it down into a bunch of traits. He said, this is one, you know, you should be um, charitable, you should be um, patient, you should be compassionate, whatever his traits were, I'm not remembering right now his traits that he listed, but the guy who stole it from him, <laughs> borrowed it from him, um, plagiarized it, uh, whatever, um, and made a Jewish, made a list of Jewish traits and then said, every week you should work on a different one of these. And he listed 13, just like Benjamin Franklin. And he said, when you're done with working on one, you do the next. And when you get to the end, you start again. Um, the great thing about midot, which is in the Jewish understanding, is that each of these traits are called a midah, which means a measure. A measure means that you want the right amount of it, not too much, not too little. So take humility. Humility, according to this um, understanding, is taking up the right amount of space. That means don't take up too much. It also means don't take up too little. That's the perfect measure, mida, of humility, anava. And so um, sometimes when we start studying Musar, there's like this big feminist critique where the women come in and say, oh no, I don't like this practice because it's telling me I should be humble and women are too humble, they shouldn't be humble. And I'm sure you've heard this conversation often in Christianity where there's a lot of teaching about being humble and being patient and then you say well this has just been abused it's kept women down you know the pastor tells women oh you're being abused by your husband you just need to be more patient uh that's not what this is about at all it's really clear in this practice that if you're being overly humble that's not that's not the right midah either okay i can see that i can understand that um so what is <laughs> okay, so tikkun olam is a phrase that means literally to heal the world. Olam is the world, tikkun is to heal. And it comes from a very old Jewish notion, litaken olam b'machut shaddai. It's in the one of our earliest prayers and one that we say often. It actually some, comes out of... Um, we say it three times a day. It's the Aleinu, the prayer at the end of the service. After you've done all the praying, there's this prayer that says it's upon us, Aleinu, um, to make the world better. We have this um, Jewish <laughs> mission to do that. And then in that pr prayer, it says, we should um, mend the world. We should fix the world under the kingdom of heaven. Um, it was a concept that Malchut Shaddai that Jesus was familiar with. Um, it didn't mean social justice activism until the 20th century. And actually in the 60s, it kind of got revived. And there's more to the story. It also was used by mystics to mean something completely similar but different, where the mystics used it in the 16th century to talk about um, 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 
the mystical way of fixing the world, which wasn't fixing the world on material way, but fixing the world spiritually, which would have in their mind material consequences. Um, so every time they did a mitzvah, if it was to pray or if it was whatever, that was a kind of tikkun of mending, which in the great scheme of things would be part of mending a broken world. It was a beautiful concept, it's a mystical concept jump to the 1960s when it started to be popularized as a way for Jewish people to talk about doing the work of the world, doing social justice work. And it became very popular. Uh, there's a magazine Michael Lerner started called Tikkun, which is about um, activism. And um, it's and some people say, oh, it's a little, you know, we're stealing the idea, we're changing it too much, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really mean that. Why are we sort of been popularized and made a little bit too simplistic? But personally, I rather like it because it's actually connecting what we're doing to things that were done in the past. And there's differences in the ways that we're doing it for sure. But the connection is really there. And the notion that what's happening in our world right now is a kind of brokenness that needs healing and that our work to bring the kingdom of God, as we understand it, is to do that healing work in little bits and in big bits, as we say, retail and wholesale. Um, I think it's a great idea. I'm I'm not opposed to using it, even though it's become something of a cliche. Well, and, and so your retreats would be an example of your efforts to sure, do that. Sure, sure. But I don't, you know, it feels a little grandiose to say I'm doing tikkun olam. But yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the retreats I do are for sure part of that healing. If I bring together a Muslim and a Jew who didn't used to talk to each other and know each other existed on the same campus, that's a kind of tikkun. That's what we refer to it as. And um, we like that language. I like that language. I like that language. And so this would be an example of it as well, the spot. Yeah, absolutely. You're tikkun. You're doing tikkun. The notion about tikkun is very nice, though. I'll tell you why I like it so much, especially um, let me think about something like um, the environmental threat that looms over us. It's hard to think about that because how the heck are we going to fix it? I mean, do I every time I put a little piece of plastic in a recycle bin, am I actually fixing the environmental crisis? No, actually, the environmental crisis just keeps growing. It's like taking a teaspoon of water out of the ocean. And sometimes that can get very depressing. And what tikkun olam to me means is that you can do, you, you have to work on every level, that there are ways in which even the tiniest little tikkun is also important. It's really important that you take that plastic or better still not even buy that plastic in the first place. But if you have it to put it in recycle, that is tikkun. But it's also tikkun to give money to an environmental group. It's also tikkun to march in an environmental justice protest demonstration where they're putting a polluting factory into a poor neighborhood. There's so many, there's level after level after level. And you can get very depressed about fixing the world if you just think, oh, I just want to make the world good, peace and justice. I want it to happen. But if you think about breaking it down, which is actually in the Jewish tradition, what happened with the mystics? I mean, they broke it down. They had no power to fix the world that they were living in, the big world. But they thought they could fix the world by their little acts. And I find that actually helpful. 
So in your retreats, uh, when you're sharing different traditions, then what specific tradition did you have others practice from Jesus? Oh, that's great. Well, I'll tell you how that worked. One year, the first, I'm trying to think about that. The first year, um, somebody talked about um, Torah study as a spiritual practice. And she led us in a conversation in which she showed us how she would take a Torah text each week and try to find what it meant for her as a person trying to build up her spiritual core. And then everyone worked on that text together. And we all thought about it, even the ones who were Buddhists and Hindus and all the other ones who didn't weren't Jewish, and maybe some of them didn't even know that text. And that was one thing she did. Another year, I shared Musar. Another year, um, the Jewish person shared um, a, um, a practice of Shabbat. And that was actually so successful. People just loved that. And basically you wonder like, how can you share Shabbat? You have an hour and a half with a group of people. We do this in, in pods of 10 so that you know people can do sort of a more intimate sharing. Um, in the process, the person explains the practice, they do the practice, and then people talk about how that practice worked for them. Uh, so in the case of Shabbat, the person who was sharing it, um, I'm remembering one time, which was really, terrific. Um, the Hillel rabbi from Brown University, uh, Rabbi Michelle Dardashti, um, she, they, we, we, we put a white tablecloth down. The 10 people in her pod sat around the tablecloth. She had candles. She had a bottle of wine, grape juice. We use grape juice in deference to Muslims. Um, um, Jews would have had wine, but we had um, a little piece of bread. I don't remember how we dug up something that would pretend to be challah at that moment. Um, we were at a retreat center. They don't think they had challah available, but we'd sat and then she led us in singing. She led us in uh, prayers for all the blessings that we do at the Shabbat table, the Sabbath table. She talked about what Shabbat means, uh, to what it means to take off your watch, what it means to join in a 24 hours of just respite, of, of ceasing, of kind of um, pulling back. Um, and it was beautiful. And everybody participated for the hour or 45 minutes or whatever it was that we, 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 we communed together around the Shabbat table. And then people reflected about what does it mean for their lives. And again, I was very struck that almost everyone said, gosh, I wish I had something like that, that forced me to step back to be quiet, to stop moving in motion and doing. And of course, the Christians knew that Sabbath had been carried over into Christianity on Sunday, but had all but forgotten about in many ways in terms of an actual thing. I mean, when I was in, when I was in college in Connecticut, I remember you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays, right? Because yeah, the blue laws. Well, that seems to have gone away, but blue laws were yeah. very, very the last like thin remnants of what used to be a huge tradition of no, Sunday is different. Sunday is different. But then in our American understanding, laws are going to keep you from doing what you want to do. So we don't want that anymore. And now, you know, the malls are open on Sunday and some people have to go to work, lots of people. Anyway, so Shabbat was one of the practices that was really popular in my um, programs. Okay. Well, time flies when you're having fun and we have spent our time. Uh, so I want to thank you deeply uh, for being here today, for being my guest. I want to thank you for the work you have done and are doing. 
uh, for making our world a more peaceful and, and more blessed place. Great. Wonderful. Nice meeting you. Well, it's wonderful to meet you, and thank you, and and hopefully, uh, since this is an ongoing series, uh, would you mind us having a f further conversation? I'd be happy sometime? to. I may have told you everything thank I know, you. but I'll try to think of something else. Well, thank you so okay. much. Blessings you to too. you. Bye-bye. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth.